Hello, high flyers, and welcome to the Death Defying Human Flycast. I'm Max Romero, your host on this one-of-a-kind journey into the world of the superhero stuntman called the Human Fly, the wildest superhero ever, because he was real. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, co-founder of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Firestorm fan number one, the man who wants us all to find our joy, the one and only irredeemable Shag. Welcome to the show, Shag. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. I was afraid I was going to be light, uh, so I took my rocket-powered skateboard just to get here on time. <laughs> you know, if there is any kind of sporting equipment that's worth having, it's worth being rocket-powered. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Max. I begged to be on the show right out of the gate when you announced it, and uh, I'm just thankful that you let me come crash the party. Always welcome. And I wanted you to have a fun issue, a fun story to deal with, and I think I've accomplished that. Well, that and I get a Daredevil cameo. So yeah. I mean, that's I'm all about that. You get all kinds of cameos. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so again, Shag, thank you for being here. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and start with the same question that I ask uh, all guests. Is this your introduction to the human fly? Close. Actually, very close. Uh, I don't recall ever hearing about the character growing up. Right. And I read lots of comics back then, even Marvel and so, you know, a lot of Marvel and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, be, I vaguely became aware of his existence as a, as a quote, real life character. Not, not even when I was managing a comic book store. It just came later, probably in like, I don't know, um, a back issue magazine or something somewhere along the lines I heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I honestly, I wouldn't at that time wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between the human fly and like the fly from Archie or red circle. Like <laughs> I honestly, until you, I started looking at the screenshots, you know, for your podcast, I thought he was green. I didn't even mm-hmm. know he was red. So um, <laughs> I did listen to uh, Ben Avery's got a great podcast called Marvel's cosmic comics, where he's going through all of Marvel's licensing stuff and he covers human fly. So I kind of, I, I knew a little bit about it, but again, didn't have a visual. I just listened to his episodes while I was down mowing the lawn or something. But so I didn't, I wasn't terribly familiar about him. So the, the first time I ever read human fly was actually something you and I did together with some of the other fire and water folks. We did an episode celebrating some of our favorite Bill Mantlo comic books. Right. And uh, I picked a Micronauts issue because of course I picked a Micronauts issue because it's like <laughs> the greatest comic ever. And you picked human fly. And I'm like, after, after enough joking, like everyone was just ridiculing <laughs> you in a fun way, you know, like, right. Right. Um, and I was like, all right, I'll try one. So I, I grabbed a couple issues and read them and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. And so I, I really, really loved it. So that was my actual first real exposure to the book. And it's really down to you. So thank you so much. Oh, no. Well, you know, I'm glad. This is, that's the whole point. <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I can bring the human fly to the, you know, into the light, that's, that's what I want. One of the things I, I love about him is the fact that he's not 
truly a superhero, right? You know, this issue, the, the two issues we're going to cover actually really, really highlight that, the fact that mm-hmm. he's not a superhero. But, and it shows you how he's fallible and stuff. It, it reminds me a little bit, when I, when I worked at the comic book shop, I had a coworker who uh, owned a Batman costume because it was, the, the year was like 1992. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. Batman movies are at their peak, right? And so he actually owns like a Michael Keaton style Batman costume and mm-hmm. he works at Kmart as a second job. And so he would dress up as Batman and do appearances in Kmart. You know, I'm, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. Warner Brothers. I'm sure Warner Brothers fully licensed that. <laughs> anyway, uh, there was a story, and it even made the newspaper uh, where he chased down a shoplifter in the oh, parking wow. lot in the Batman costume. You know, tackled <laughs> the guy to the ground in the Batman. You know, Batman stops shoplifter was you know the headline or whatever it was, and wow. it's just it. The reality of that was just like, dude, you could have got killed like <laughs> super easy. That's right. crazy. And so watching the, or not watching, but reading these comics is like, that goes through my mind, the real world aspect of that. And right. You know, the stuff that this guy's doing is like, this is insane. You know, oh, yeah. but I love it for it. Yeah. No. And one of the things I, and I've mentioned it on other shows, but one of the things I love about the human fly is that the more people insist that he's a superhero, the more he insists he's not. <laughs> he just, mm-hmm. he wants it to be very clear. I am not a superhero. I'm just a guy who does stunts. And I, I, I love that. I love that it's not someone, because a lot of times you'll see characters who will kind of deny it at first. Right. And then they kind of go like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm a superhero now. And they kind of embrace it. My beloved Blue Devil. It's a, he was yeah. a very much a reluctant hero, and eventually he just uh, accepted it. Right. Also a stuntman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dan Cassidy represents. Yeah. But, you know, spoiler alert. The human fly never goes down that road. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he is a stuntman till the end. He never calls himself a superhero. For some reason, I find that really endearing and also very relatable. You yeah. Know, that, that keeps him really grounded. There, there's a moment, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but whatever, in this particular mm-hmm. issue where he does that, where he says, I'm not a superhero. But he says it in such a way to these, these, this group of kids, he's chaperoning. He goes, my first responsibility is to keeping you safe mm-hmm. and you know, not go be a superhero, which is like, wow, that's incredibly responsible it's, you know as a, as, <laughs> right. a par- as a parent i'm like yeah thank you and it just um it really resonated with me it's probably my favorite moment in the comic yeah i completely understand that i mean i'm not a parent myself but i would certainly appreciate someone saying no first i'm going to get you to safety because that's my number one priority and the, all this other stuff <laughs> can handle <laughs> itself and you know so let, let's get going also jumping ahead, you know, there's something happens in the, uh, this is a two-part story. So this is going to be uh, issue eight and nine of The Human Fly. And in issue nine, there's another opportunity, I guess, for him to go into super heroics. And instead he says, no, stay down. We're staying here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that I find so fascinating about it is that in a time when Marvel was licensing comics, this was probably one of the most out there licensing opportunities <laughs> that they took on. Okay. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was a time of, and we've, we've discussed this before, but it was a time when stuntmen were kind of a big deal. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, there were folk heroes along with long distance truck drivers and guys like that. It's just so um, odd that when Marvel was licensing mostly toys and uh things that things that you could find on a shelf they chose to go with a real person Mm -hmm. and not only that but a person who wasn't telling anybody who he was right um, which i guess was the hook but what do you think of that in terms of 
the other kind of comics that Marvel was licensing and just licensing in general. Well, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Interesting enough, because I actually have a story about licensing that I wanted to mention because I don't think, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think I've heard anyone share this on your show, which is uh, basically a, a direct reasons why I think this comic got made. So it's a long circuitous route here, but I'll get there. Mm-hmm. So um, Marvel you know, obviously went on this massive licensing binge, just like you mentioned, in the late 70s and early 80s. But if you look back until the late 1970s, Marvel didn't actually license a lot of stuff because Marvel didn't want to share the revenue like with whoever owned the license because you know yeah that's how it works with licensing. So uh, there's this interesting story and this this story comes from uh, Jim Shooter but he's talking about Roy Thomas. Mm-hmm. He says Roy Thomas pushed Marvel to publish Star Wars this licensed book called Star Wars, right? Uh, and this is before the movie was out no one had seen it any of that and they weren't going to do it except he uh Roy got the rights to publish Star Wars with no fees to Lucasfilm. If Marvel hadn't gotten it for free, they probably wouldn't have done the book at all. Well, you know, here we look in 1977 and 1978, it was some dark, dark, dark times for the comic industry, right? I mean, it's DC, the DC implosions around the corner. Marvel is really struggling. The whole comic book industry is in dire straits. Mm -hmm. And then Marvel sales on Star Wars were not just successful. They were unbelievably explosively successful. They sold over a million copies of that book. And which was four times the amount of any of Marvel's other best-selling titles. Wow. So Marvel made so much money. It, it, Jim Shooter says it literally saved Marvel financially in 1977, 1978. That is why Marvel then went forward and tried to license everything. <laughs> so if it hadn't been for the success of Star Wars, I don't think Human Fly ever would have got published wow. because they were yeah. looking for the next big thing. Now, I don't know. Who in the Marvel office, maybe it was Archie Goodwin, the editor, I don't know, who in the Marvel office thought that a human fly would be the next big thing. <laughs> but either way, the, you know, Battlestar Galactica 2001, mm-hmm. um, oh gosh, you know, uh, million, Micronauts, there's Zombrom, yeah. there's Rom, a million. Yeah. Logan Warriors. Right. Yeah, good one. Logan's Run. I mean, um, mm-hmm. tons and tons of licensed books. So I do think Human Fly is probably one of the weirdest ones. Um, I mean, certainly as you get later in the eighties, you know, transformers is big, but then you get some weird ones, robotics and sectars, and there's some pretty strange ones they they licensed. (laughs) But again, you're right. Those were still tied to toy lines. This is one of the, this, this is the only one now someone could come in and certainly in the comments and correct me here, but this is the only one I could think of that wasn't tied to a movie TV show or a toy. Uh, so I, I can't think of any other line that Marvel did that tied to it. So it's a bizarre one. I, I don't have any answers as to why they did it, but other than it's, you know, another opportunity to maybe sell a million copies, they thought. And I think you're right. I can't think of anything else that was not attached to a toy or a movie or, you know, th- this was just a guy who went around mostly, for, forgive me, Rick Rojat, wherever you are, mostly, <laughs> mostly failing at, uh, at attempted stunts. Right. And, uh, you know, but still he, they managed to squeeze 19 issues out of it. Mm hmm. Evil Knievel didn't get a book. No. You know, um, who else was cool back then? I don't know. Uh, Henry Winkler didn't get a book. You know, I mean, it's not like the old days when Bob Hope would get it, you know, and would have his own comic book. It's nothing like that at all. So, yeah, that's actually probably the closest analogy is the old days when Jerry Lewis and Bob mm-hmm. Hope had their own comics, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, they were already bankable stars. Exactly. You know, who, who the hell? Yeah. Who had ever heard of, you know, unless you were a hardcore fan of That's Incredible, you had probably never heard of you would <laughs> Yeah, and it's just it's just this, you know. I know, I know you want. I was going to go with a flying amber metaphor, but I'm not because I have respect for my listeners. 
The- but the beauty is, you said it enough. That was all in our heads. You still pulled it off. Well played, sir. Well played. I have no shame. The, <laughs> but you know, it, it's this little. It's this little time capsule from a very interesting era in Marvel Comics in particular that, you know, as, as you're saying with the licensed comics, is kind of uh, an indicator of what was going on in the industry at the time. And it, it's just, I hate to keep using the same word, but it's, it, it is really just fascinating to me, everything going on behind this comic. Mm-hmm. Well, the letters page is going to touch on something really fascinating when we get there, too. Mm-hmm. Did being familiar with Bill Mantlo give you any idea of what to expect from this comic i expected a lot of dense text (laughs) (laughs) um that a lot of fascinating crazy ideas um Mm -hmm. i mean this isn't quite rocket raccoon crazy uh and i don't mean the i'm talking about the the miniseries rocket raccoon that thing's bonkers um and also one thing that he's really really good at it was exceptional at was creating little pocket corners of the marvel universe right Right. rom micronauts where they were still in the marvel universe except they're off in their own little corner where it didn't mess up you know whatever's happened the avengers or the x-men or whatever but somebody might pop in this is a perfect example of another one you know this guy's in a corner of the marvel universe he's doing his own thing once in a while he bumps into spider-man he bumps into you know white (laughs) white tiger or whatever but for the most part he's fighting bears you know or something right <laughs> yeah, and, and I will spoil it too, but there a, a bear makes another appearance. It does <laughs> later <true>. on. <laughs> so, if only it was the same one. <laughs> oh, you, need, you know what? Let's just pretend it was. Maybe there it, it was. Is. But okay, so you're going to give us a summary of the human flight number eight in just a minute. But just what were your general impressions after reading this comic? Oh, it was super fun. Um, in fact, I think when we did that episode uh about bill mantlo i think this is the comic actually i read like i read the number one and i think i read this one too because i was looking for daredevil even though i, oh, I yeah. only read i read number eight not number nine so i missed it but um <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm I, it is an absolute blast I, i'm out of superlatives it's uh <laughs> I, the word it just comes down to the word fun i mean that is what this thing it mm. is a like i had a stupid stupid looking grin on my face the whole time reading this book like not knowing what was going to happen on the next page right and then turning the corner and be like oh my gosh you know he's riding the skateboard or oh my gosh he's you know literally leaping from one mezzanine to the next and stuff and it just <laughs> it was that again sorry i'm i'm out of i'm out of praise other than fun so that to answer your question yeah well you know i think that sums it up perfectly i that's how i keep describing it, it it's just it's a fun book it is just a really fun book. And you know what? We keep teasing people with the, with uh, this idea of a, <laughs> of a rocket-powered skateboard. So <laughs> yeah. let, let's, let's go ahead and get into it. Why don't you give us your uh, summary of Human Flight number eight? Sure thing. So, well, first is the cover. Uh, can, I cover the, can I talk about the cover? Do you want me to do that at the end? No, you can do it now. You can do it, right. you can do it at the end. Uh, well, I'll talk about the cover because it's super fun. The cover is by Frank Robbins and Mike Esposito. And I, what you're looking at is it's primarily red. And it says on the... Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. I'm so excited, folks. Uh, basically, the description is on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum, there's a crowd of children and they're all running in terror from some kind of battle. And in the bottom right hand corner of the cover is this copper colored bad guy in a fedora and a trench coat. And he's brandishing and firing a pistol at our hero, the human fly. Uh, so uh, our favorite stuntman, folks, is literally flying across the screen of the cover on a rocket powered skateboard. I'll say that <laughs> one more time rocket powered skateboard just want to make sure no one was even remotely confused (laughs) he's flying through the sky on this thing in an effort to protect the children uh also in the bottom there there's a little inset drawing a circle 
uh, of another character clad all in white with like a white cowl and a white suit and everything and a glowing necklace. And with Texas as special guest, the white tiger. Then you got to talk about all call outs. You get, you know, the wildest superhero ever because he's real. You get a charity stunt flings the fly into conflict against the incredible copperhead. Then it says mayhem at the metropolitan. As much as I love the cover, there might be a little too much text on the cover. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love this thing. What do you think of the cover? You know, I like it. What I don't understand, and like you're saying, there's a lot of text because there's a, there's that sign in the background. Oh, yeah, the, the sign the, too, the, right? The Met City Festival and all that sort of stuff. But I don't understand why so much of the cover is taken up with that. I don't know if that's a red awning, a red... Oh, it's the red Random? skies. He's he's in the middle of the crisis on infinite earth. It's the red skies. <laughs> That's what happened to him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, they they lost a real a lot of real estate. I think by doing that, it really makes the the title pop out. But other than that, I'm not really sure why they did that. It well, looked, I think it, I it think, ends up looking crowded at the bottom. I think you nailed it. I think it's to make the title pop because it it is a very busy cover with a mm-hmm. lot of colors, right? Right. And yeah, if yeah. there was more of it behind the title. You'd never even see what the title of the comic is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> That's you'd be like, true. You know, what am I reading? What is this book? So I wouldn't be surprised if the editor maybe even like slid the art down. Like maybe there's more at the bottom. I don't know. But like, mm. you know, just say, okay, we, we can't see the title of the comic. So we have to have some kind of solid background behind it. Mm-hmm. And I think the red makes it pop because, you know, the, you're looking at the top. You get your, you get your primary colors, right? You get your red, you get your blue, you get your yellow. All three of them are right there by the human fly, you know, logo, right? Mm-hmm. The, the white letters, the blue border around it, and then the yellow with the wildest superhero. You get your white in the human fly logo. You get the black in the Marvel comics. It's all your basic colors right there at the top, which is just going to grab your eye, especially with the way comics stacked on the shelves back then. Right. And also, it's very clever placement of having the human fly dead square in the middle i mean he's in like a super dynamic pose but they really made sure to put him dead square in the middle of the cover and i i love it maybe i'm maybe it's just because i'm too excited about it and i'm i'm (laughs) I'm not seeing the flaws but i think it's great again other than the text a little too much text other than Mm -hmm. that i love it yeah no it 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 is i mean i say it over and over again but the human fly covers are some of my favorite comic book covers here's a shout out for our buddy rob kelly so on the cover uh, is one of the young children who's running. You can see he's wearing this T-shirt, and we'll see him throughout the whole issue. Yes. It says Fly Power, right? They make these awesome-looking T-shirts that say Fly Power. And the Fly Power logo, it's a black circle with yellow letters that say Fly Power. And if I wasn't paying <laughs> enough attention, I would think that's a Power Records cover, uh, bullet because it, the power and the, mm-hmm. the colors and the circle, it looks like Power Records to me. An exclamation point, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I want this T-shirt, by the way. <laughs> Somebody out there can make it. That's for sure. And I think we <laughs> we could throw it up on our uh, T Public store, store for sure. Yeah, you know, I just love the way he's leaning into that skateboard. Yes. <laughs> now, I will say, if you look at this, the way he's he's leaning in the skateboard, he's got that cool arch going, the, and the rocket powered skateboard's going along. But if you look at like this is the. I don't know if you've ever seen those uh, commissions people do where they do five seconds later covers where they like, they take a famous comic book cover and they hire an artist to draw what happened five seconds later. Oh, um, no. Five seconds later after this one, the human fly has fallen off that skateboard. Because <laughs> there's no way he's, the inertia is going to carry him based on the way his feet are placed on that skateboard. He is coming mm-hmm. off of it right now and he's about to jump and land on the copperhead. Yep. And unfortunately, that's not going to end well because he's just a regular guy <laughs> and copperhead's just a big metal suit. So right. that's going to be a big squash. <laughs> I think you're right. I think yep. you're right. All right. Well, you want me to get into it? Yeah, let's go. All right. So it's cover dated April 1978. It was on sale January 3rd, 1978. What a happy new year present. Look at this. This is great. Cover price, <laughs> 35 cents, folks. And the story is entitled The Tiger and the Fly. Writer was Bill Mantlow. Whoop, whoop. 
Uh, artist was Frank Robbins. The inker, this is interesting. The inker is credited as the New York tribe, which is a weird thing. I had to look this up. So it turns out the tribe was a studio of Filipino artists. So the question becomes, what is the New York tribe? Is this like some sort of subset of those folks that lived in New York? I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, now some websites do credit uh, the inking to Tony uh, Dezaniga, uh, while others credit it to Mike Esposito. I suspect it was a group of people would be what my guess would mm. be. But All right. So lettering is Joe Rosen. Colorist is Mary Titus. And editor is Archie Goodwin. And there's a special credit in here. Adam Mantlo of the Suicide Sky Divers Skateboard Club is credited with technical advice. Look yeah. at that. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know Bill's personal history. I don't know if that's uh, if he has a son or not, or maybe a cousin or a nephew, but I suspect basically what it is is he went to some kid he knows who skateboards for some yeah. advice on how this works. <laughs> yeah, so, someone in the Mantlo family was a skateboarder. Exactly. So, all right, as our story begins, uh, just outside the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where the whole neighborhood is turned out for the Inner City Cultural Festival. There's fun, there's festivities, there's tons of kids are turned out all to see the Human Fly's latest stunt spectacular. I tell you what, if little Max Romero and little uh, Irredeemable Shaggy had been in New York, we would have been there, I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So our favorite stuntman is zooming along, riding a rocket-powered skateboard, as we've correctly made sure you understand what we're talking about here. <laughs> uh, he's riding on this skateboard, right? And he's riding along a, a steel track, and he ends up completing a full upside-down loop on the skateboard, much like you did with your slot cars as a kid, except this loop is about 20 feet high. So the crowd explodes in cheers. And among the crowd are the Human Flies crew, you know, Ted and Arnie and Blaze, as well as the Human Flies frenemy. Harmony is there, too, the news reporter. And when Harmony asks the Human Fly for a statement, he says he's participating in the festival to give hope to those disabled in any way, including poverty. Uh, also in attendance is uh, someone we're introduced to named Hector Ayala. I don't know if I said that right, but I gave him my best try. Ayala. Ayala, there we go. I will get that wrong in a minute, I promise. (laughs) Uh, He is secretly the superhero known as the White Tiger. Now, uh, Hector is Puerto Rican, and it was the, this is, forgive the way I I describe this, but this is the way it's described in Wikipedia. He is the first Latin American main character in the history of comics, and he was Marvel's first Hispanic superhero. Pretty big deal. Now, regardless of that amazing accomplishment in this story, Hector is incredibly saddened. He feels like the, he isn't good enough uh, as a superhero to inspire the Hispanic kids in the neighborhood like the human fly could. Uh, then uh, he goes inside the museum. Well, later on inside the museum also is the human fly, and he's helping chaperone this large group of kids as they explore the exhibits. Also chaperoning is Margarita Mercado, uh, the youngest woman curator in the country and the woman responsible for organizing the festival. And she seems to just be a little bit sweet on our favorite stuntman. Now, Harmony is shadowing the human fly in the museum as well, haranguing him during the museum tour. And sadly, well, you know, there's been some evolution, right, in Harmony's character across the series. But here, she's stuck between a rock and a hard place. At this point, she does have some respect for the fly. We're learning that through the word balloon, the thought balloons. But she's being forced by her producers to continue to attempt to expose his secret identity. So she's torn between doing the right thing and torn between losing her job. So while the kids are enjoying the museum, Something else evil is afoot. A dastardly villain is in the second floor administrative offices where he murders one of the museum curators. The villain is revealed as Copperhead, the former villain of Daredevil. Or maybe he's not, as we'll find out in the next issue. 
So Copperhead is disguised in a fedora and a trench coat. And all we can see is his like this metallic copper colored mask. And in this very macabre kind of move, Copperhead leaves pennies on his, his victim's eyelids, leaving uh, it says their payment for as the victim crosses the river sticks. Now, while wandering the museum, Hector, remember, secretly the white tiger, he overhears the, the murder, the scuffle, all of that. And he goes to investigate. Unfortunately, at, the, at that same moment, the museum security arrive and they find Hector standing over the body and they assume he's responsible for the murder. So Hector makes a break for it and he transforms into the all white clad superhero, the white tiger. Well, uh, and then the museum guards open fire with the revolvers thinking he's the murderer. Well, the human fly and the kids hear these gunshots and quickly move to the lower levels of the museum to avoid the battle. Now, we, we referenced this earlier. This is where the kids ask the human fly why he isn't helping the police. And he reminds the kids that he's not a superhero that he's a stuntman, and his first priority is keeping the kids safe. The kids and the chaperones all take refuge on the lowest level next to this enormous temple urn. It was made apparently back in 450 BC. It's the largest urn of uh, this kind ever to be found. So with the kids safe, the fly now rides his rocket-powered skateboard through the museum, searching for the cause of the gunshots to see if he can help. Even though he just said he wasn't a superhero a minute ago, now he's acting like one. It's about this time that all hell breaks loose. On the lower level, the kids are hiding. They're huddled up against this enormous urn, right? And the mezzanine that's overlooking them, that's where Copperhead is. And he's still holding that pistol. And from both sides coming straight at Copperhead is the white tiger and the human fly about to do the beat down, right? Copperhead knocks the human fly over the mezzanine. Uh, he goes flying. As our stuntman falls, he lands back right amongst the, kid he was uh, the kids that he was chaperoning earlier. So he's back with them. Uh, and the villain triggers this secret device, which begins to lower that em enormous urn that we talked about. And the urn goes down and down and down. Eventually, it lowers the urn into an abandoned underground subway tunnel. Bill Mantlo, sir, you are crazy. Uh, and it turns out this was Copperhead's plan all along, was to steal the urn. That's actually what he was trying to do. Unfortunately, along with the urn, he's also stolen the kids, their chaperones, and the human fly. Well, back in the museum, uh, the white tiger continues to battle Copperhead, but uh, our hero, unfortunately, is shot with poisonous darts, and it looks like this might be the end for him. And meanwhile, back in the underground subway tunnel, the kids and the human fly are facing certain doom as this torrent of flood water pours through the tunnel. And as the water rises, uh, you're left wondering on a cliffhanger, how will our hero save himself and the children under his protection from drowning? The human fly, a man possessed of no extraordinary powers, a man with no super strength. How will he do all this and stop the mad scheme of the Copperhead? And that's it. Next issue, Daredevil makes three. Woof, man, that thing was a roller coaster or maybe <laughs> I, even a rocket-powered skateboard kind of ride. You know, and that is the kind of cliffhanger I want. <laughs> yes. That's what I want. Three different things happening at the same time. <laughs> Who knows this... what's going on? Is this the second two-parter or the, I forget. This is the second, yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. the cliffhangers aren't actually that common in fly, human flies. So this is kind of exciting. Yeah. In total, there are two, there are three, sorry, two issue stories. Okay. Uh, and the last one is actually issue 18 and 19, which are, which Ooh. are going to be the end of the, of the series. And we'll, we'll get into that later, but the, of, you know, it was, it's a shame because the end of the series was a surprise to everybody. So unfortunately, you know, the fly just kind of rode off into the sunset, but at least he did it with the two-parter. <laughs> there you go. Well, that was fantastic, Shaq. That was, <laughs> I love the story and I love to hear people talk about it. So we're going to take a quick break, a quick promo break, and then we'll be back and we will do a summary of the next issue, which is issue number nine of the human fly. And then we'll talk about the whole thing. We'll be right back. 
Just imagine the mightiest heroes of our time. All of them on one team. Since there are so many of us, we have a chance to do more than just put out fires. We can be proactive. We can do some real good in the world. JLU Cast brings you coverage of Justice League Unlimited, the ultimate gathering of DC's heroes and villains, and the culmination of the greatest interpretation of the DC Universe ever. Join Chris and Cindy Franklin as they relive the team-ups, the battles, the conspiracies. I had no idea that the Girl Scouts were responsible for the crop circle phenomenon. Few people do. Few even think to ask the question. The romance and the fun. A head start. You're getting soft in your old age. Don't you have a tall building to go leave? And the adventure continues. Find us wherever fine fire and water podcasts are available. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And we're back. And we just heard a fantastic recap of issue number eight of The Human Fly from Shag. Uh, So let's keep it rolling with The Human Fly number nine, Doomsday Dawns at Night. Uh, We have a cover here by John Byrne on pencils and Terry Austin on inks. Woo-hoo. And I'm just going to stop right there, Shag, because I know these are, these are two of your guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, burned in Austin in the early 1980s. I mean, they can do no wrong at this point. Right. Right. And you know, and I got a, I got a real, we're going to talk about it in a second, but I got a real, almost less X-Men, more um, alpha flight kind of vibe from this almost. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, so, and I was a big fan of alpha flight. So I adore me some alpha flight. Yeah, I could the human flies costume, you know, with, with such a strong red and things like that. It does sort <laughs> sure. of reminisce yeah. of uh guardian. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. So on the cover, we have the human fly big, bright and stretched right across the cover. And he's hanging from his feet from a balcony railing and reaching toward two children who are being washed away by an incredible amount of water flooding the interior of what looks like a very fancy building. Uh, in the background, we see the formidable white tiger thigh deep in the same water, giving a martial arts kick to a pistol waving copperhead. We got not one, but two bursts on the cover, which is, you know, again, a lot of words. But one of them says the fly and the white tiger team to save a paralyzed city and stop the sinister copperhead. And the other smaller one says extra special guest star daredevil. Shag, what did you think of this cover? Well, once I got done wiping the drool from my chin, um, <laughs> for, I mean, it's, it, okay, it's John Byrne and, and Terry Austin. It's gorgeous. Now, am I going to poke some holes in this? Of course I am, because that's what you do on podcasts. <laughs> but uh, let's just, you know, one of the things that strikes me the most as I look at this in comparison to, say, the previous cover is the human form. Like, mm-hmm. John Byrne, damn, that guy can draw. Yeah. Like, you know, as much as I love the Frank Robbins cover, they look like superheroes, right? Here, he looks like a ballet dancer. Like his body is, is I mean, he's got giant muscles, but I mean, it's just, it's smooth. There's something about, and I, I lack the, the verbal 
ability. Wow. Right there. Verbal ability. Uh, I lack the words to describe artistically what I'm trying to say, but he draws human figures so cleanly. And mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't want to say realistic because they're not, I mean, he, they're not realistic. I mean, he's, he's, he's hanging upside down by his toes. I mean, right. You know, it's not realistic, but they just look so much more shaped and formed mm-hmm. and perfect. I, I love it. They look gorgeous. Um, yeah, you know, you're right though. Cause the, he's muscular, but he's muscular in a different way than the white tiger is behind mm-hmm. You know, the white tiger looks bigger and kind of beefier and, and the human fly looks leaner and like you said, more, you know, less, less bodybuilder and more, uh, you know, Olympic swimmer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's probably because he's got massive arms. You're right. So that's actually pretty good. And I like what's what Burns trying to do. He's trying to do a forced perspective where, you know, um, the, the human fly's feet are kind of further away from us, but the hands are closer. Mm-hmm. So there's some foreshortening going on. I think the hands coming at you look great. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're pretty big compared to like his head and everything. I think it gets a little wonky with the, the length of the legs. But other than that, it just looks great. I think the white tiger looks solid. I mean, this looks like kind of like, an, you know, like you said, Alpha Flight or X-Men kind of cover. It doesn't look like the cover from last month at all. It looks like an entirely different book. Now, if you want to poke some, you know, flaws or whatever, John Byrne is famously has trouble drawing kids. And there are two kids (laughs) in the water here. (laughs) Guess what are the only two things on the cover that don't look quite right? It's the kids. (laughs) Right. Yes, exactly. Which is funny. You know, he even took the time to draw the museum and the background and the waves slapping in. It looks beautiful. One thing that did sort of confuse me, though, is, you know, you've got this great cover, right? Where the kids are about to drown, all this stuff's going on. And yet the cover copy describes the fly and the white tiger team to save a paralyzed city mm-hmm. and stop the sinister copperhead paralyzed city what are they talking about <laughs> that's not in this comic book i mean they should have mentioned the floodwaters or the theft or the the mobsters but paralyzed city that that has is no connection to this comic book whatsoever <laughs> no this is all contained within the museum and the rest of the city seems fine <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> but damn it's an exciting cover it is. And, you know, I got I have to agree with you. The only thing that bothers me about this cover, really, and it's a gorgeous cover, are the kids. I, mm-hmm. First of all, I didn't realize the, the, there's a little girl on the uh, left-hand side of the cover and a boy on the, on the, on the right. Uh, I did not know that the girl was supposed to be a girl, first of all. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> that, looks like, that looks like a full-grown woman. And the, and the boy looks sort of like a Chucky doll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he's got the shirt. Yeah, but, yeah, the face yeah. is... There's something wrong with that face. Yeah, that's a little off. <laughs> but the rest of it is just beautiful. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the water looks great. Uh, you can kind of see the flow of it around the that corridor. Oh, the yeah. I feel, I feel it's moving. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's the arches over, the, you know, in a doorway and along the, uh, the, the balcony at the top. And the railings kind of bend away from the, from the reader. Windows and, you know, just... All sorts of things going on architecturally that look gorgeous in this. You know, I'm not sure who did the colors on on this cover, but those are great also. Oh, good point. Yeah. You can see the different color and the, the light bouncing off the water and everything. You mm-hmm. see this, you know, um, well, it's going to, I guess he's really just one color. It's, that's the Terry Austin shading really that did the trick there. But yeah, mm-hmm. the colors are gorgeous too. Ah, it's, it's so stinking good, man. I love yeah. this cover. Yeah, it is. I'm glad you mentioned Alpha Flight because it definitely, I do get a vibe of Alpha Flight. It's about the right time for that too. I mean, we're, we're pretty close to that too. Right. So let's, uh, let's get back to this recap. Uh, the cover date is May, 1978. The sale date was February 2nd, 1978, just a week before my eighth birthday. Mm. Uh, so that was a great birthday present for me. <laughs> uh, 
the story title inside is different. It says, and Daredevil makes three. We open where we left off in issue number eight with a human fly, a bunch of museum visiting school kids, curator Margarita Mercado, and fly team member Arnie Berman all trying to stay above water in an abandoned subway tunnel that's quickly being flooded. Meanwhile, Copperhead, who's supposed to be dead, laughs not only because his plan to steal the urn is going perfectly, but also because he's standing over the prone figure of the white tiger, who he's already shot with two poison darts. The fly and the rest of the group climb onto the dais of the urn, reassuring the children that everything's going to be fine, even if the adults have their doubts. Back in the gallery, Copperhead's busy patting himself on the back when the museum guards realize their mistake in pursuing the white tiger. Trying to take Copperhead into custody, the guard's gunshots prove futile against his armor and Copperhead attacks, giving the dying tiger a chance to drag himself away. The white tiger transforms back to Hector Ayala and finds the poison has been neutralized by the change. But seeing Copperhead beating the guards within an inch of their lives, Hector leaps at the villain as himself. Meanwhile, the water continues to rise in the subway tunnel under the museum. Everyone climbs directly into the giant urn at this point. Soon enough, the entire urn is lifted by the floodwaters and begins to float down the tunnel. Just to make this clear, the human fly, a couple of adults, and a group of kids are whitewater rafting down an old subway tunnel in a giant ancient urn. (laughs) (laughs) He's not wrong. He's not wrong. (laughs) This is exactly what's happening in the story at this point. Enter Daredevil. The man without fear earlier noticed about a dozen of New York's most notorious art smugglers watching the human fly stunt in front of the museum. But instead of going into the museum, the smugglers went to a construction site that's part of a subway expansion. Daredevil doesn't know what's going on, but he's willing to wait it out. Speaking of the museum, Hector is wrestling with Copperhead and manages to muscle him over the railing and into the water below, saying, I hope you can swim in your heavy metal Halloween suit, senor. (laughs) halfway down he transforms back into the white tiger and the fight is on at the other end of the tunnel the urn and its passengers reach moonlight and the end of their ride the human fly realizes two things they've arrived at a construction site and the men waiting above are up to no good the smugglers are ready to put a bullet in everyone there but daredevil swings into action one of the kids asks the fly if he's going to help but as bullets fly and pwing off the urn he reminds him of what he said at the museum he's not a crime fighter The battle between Daredevil and the smugglers continues, with one guy ending up in a cage with a bear at the zoo across the street, while the white tiger continues to pursue Copperhead. Copperhead, however, catches up to the urn first, and Miss Mercado recognizes his voice. Copperhead confesses he is Reynolds, a former museum employee who worked next to Lawrence Chesney, the original Copperhead. Breaking into his apartment, Reynolds stole the armor and equipment and became the new Copperhead in order to steal the urn. Copperhead points a gun at the kids, and the human fly has had enough. He launches himself at the crook while the white tiger attacks from behind. Together, they finally defeat Copperhead, who sinks without a trace beneath the water, flooding the tunnel below. Daredevil has mopped up the smugglers and joins the heroes in time to see the human fly get a much-earned peck on the cheek from Miss Mercado. Mm-hmm. The end. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Where do we, let's, get, let's where just, we begin? <laughs> yeah. So, let, let, so, what did you think of this story overall, Shaq? I think it, it's it's the perfect... Bill Mantlo story because it's again, I mentioned earlier that he, he finds these corners of the Marvel universe and it is a story about the human fly in something simple, which is he's just trying to save some kids. That's really all it is. Mm-hmm. The human fly is trying to protect some children from a situation that's gotten out of control. Meanwhile, 
you get the superheroics. You get White Tiger battling the crap out of Copperhead. You know, I mean, now, yes, Human Fly gets a couple licks in, but it's really White Tiger fighting Copperhead. Those are the, yeah. the superheroes, supervillains. So it's still in the Marvel Universe, but it's White Tiger doing his thing, which is protecting the kids and, you know, of course, doing stunts. So I, I feel like it's the perfect melding of what Bill Mantlo loves to do in the Marvel Universe. Right. Yeah. And it's that's a very good point because the Human Fly is he's not concerned with saving the urn or saving any of the artwork necessarily. And he is not even really concerned about uh, stopping the criminal as much as he is, you know, like you said, he's just, he just wants to protect the people who are being threatened. Mm -hmm. It's a, that's a very human response. I think of let's get out of here and let's get somewhere safe. And the rest is going to have to take care of itself. Yep. That makes total sense for someone who does not see himself as a superhero. Why is he going to involve himself in superheroics? You know, exactly. Why is he, he going to go after some guy in a big copper suit? It's one thing to be a good Samaritan and help mm-hmm. someone cross the street or stand up <laughs> when they see something, someone doing an injustice and saying, hey, that's not right. You don't treat that person that way. It's another thing. But a guy's got a gun and he's shooting people and he's trying to steal something. And at the end of the day, you're like, I don't care if he steals the urn. It, again, it's all about helping the kids. Yeah. Right. I don't know right. if that sentence got away from me there or not. I'm not sure. But... <laughs> You know, and that I would have liked to have seen a little more of the crew. They they basically almost kind of just make a cameo. Yeah, this. they they really were. Unless if I hadn't listened to your previous episodes, I would have had no idea who those people were or why they were there. Yeah. yeah. That's a that's a very good point. And they they would have I think to the casual reader, they would have been these people who pop up for no discernible reason and then disappear. Well, but they did come to his aid. I mean, they stood up for him against Harmony. So obviously right. you can tell they're friends, but that's about it. You know, and another interesting thing too, I noticed um Daredevil. Dare, they show Daredevil's radar sense and stuff mm-hmm. like that. They never explain it, which is probably the first time <laughs> ever in the history of comics where Daredevil's radar sense did not get explained because they always spend time explaining it, um, except in his own book where you're assumed you should know it. But uh, yeah, so that, I thought that was very interesting as well. So there's a lot of uh, assuming you know what's going on here. Yeah, well, you know, but that's classic Mantlo. And, mm. and also, with everything going on, I don't know how he would have fit that in. <laughs> How is well, he, you know, how is he going to explain Daredevil's radar? How is he going to explain White Tiger's uh, amulets, except that they give him power? It, you know, there's just so much I, going on in here. <laughs> I know where he could have got a page or two back. All right, you ready? I think, because, all right, so you mentioned uh, Copperhead, you know, was, was re- they're, you know, brought back to our thought dead. And then there's mm-hmm. a, you know, the new version, all that. There is no mention of that in issue eight whatsoever. Not one. I double check. Yeah. There's not one jot. It's only in issue nine. In fact, it's on the first page where they call him reincarnated Copperhead. Yeah. I think between issues, someone came along to like Archie Goodwin's office and said, or Bill Manlo <laughs> called him on the house phone and said, dude, that guy you got running around, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> and, there, and it wasn't even one of those like, oh, come on, it's a bad guy, right? He got away. Like, no, he's dead. Yeah. So then Bill had to spend like two or three pages coming up with this super convoluted plot point of how Copperhead <laughs> was a museum worker and he found the costume and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And now he's, you know, what? It, 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 they could have yeah. just nixed that and just said, the villain's back. Who cares? It's Marvel, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone comes back. Yeah, then he could have got a couple of pages at the end. He could have got a couple pages back, I think. Def- yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it was so convoluted, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, what was that name of the... There was that... Wasn't there a character named Cobra or something like that who used to fight Spider-Man? Well, there's a million snake characters. Yeah. Uh, there was some, some guy who could, like, contort his body in all kinds of ways. Anyway, 
I'm sorry, someone is going to correct me in the in the comments, and I hope they do. But that would have been a good villain, I think. Instead of you know, if if uh, Bill Mantlo was digging around for <laughs> for sure. adversaries, and here here's something I don't get about Copperhead, right? Like, what's his shtick? Because like he's 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 got like a copper suit. He's kind of like almost like an Iron Man sort of thing, right? Where mm-hmm. he's like a big metal suit, but he keeps drawing out his S's like it's like a snake motif, you know, like a right. like an S. But there's no snake motif going on anywhere. You know, Mm-mm. he leaves copper pennies on right. that guy's eyes. So that kind of fits with copperhead, right? But there is not one snake thing going on here at all. So I'm like, I don't get why he's doing the S's and his, you know, the sound, <laughs> whatever, man. It's cool. It's Marvel in the seventies. I'm down with it. Whatever. Yeah, that, that That is true. And did he know enough about the original copperhead to do that? Like, uh, I mean, was he just aping him or what was going on there? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> And we and we probably never will, right? Well, I, I think this guy's. Well, I don't know if he comes back. I think uh, the next time you see a Copperhead, it's like a third version of Copperhead or something. Oh so, my God. yeah. But yeah. you know, hey, Daredevil's here. It's a Daredevil villain, so all it's all good. Yeah. So, what did you think of that? Uh, it's not quite a, a splash panel, but it's a good. It's a good two panel image of the fly going around that loop in issue eight. Oh, on the, his, the on his rocket powered on his rocket powered skateboard. That's phenomenal. I loved it. It looks great. I mean, they did a, they did a nice build up to it where he's zooming towards it, and you're actually mm-hmm. like the, the the splash page. You're looking through the loop, so you actually get kind of the circular focus, and you see it's coming. And then uh, he does the like you said that giant uh, half page loop. I because I'm a sucker for when they show the same character moving a whole bunch of times. Usually they do it yeah. with just acrobatics, but here they're doing it with his, his swooping. And I actually sat here and I like measured body heights. I'm like, okay, how tall is he? <laughs> I'm gonna. It's probably more like 18 feet, but that didn't sound good in my recap, so I wrote 20. But anyway, um, I think it looks great. I, I think it looks great. And he does that cool landing, and boy, look how short the ramp is at the end. Man, he stopped like on a dime, like. Argh! And he's mm-hmm. done right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really did actually. Now that mm-hmm. you mentioned it, yeah, <laughs> that is true. You know, one one thing I I appreciate about this comic as as a as a Latino person is how Manlo just really went out of his way to represent a, a community well known in New York, especially at that time, which is mm-hmm. the 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 Puerto Rican uh, community. Right. There's, you know, we have White Tiger, who was a favorite of mine from a, as a kid. And, you know, and like, you know, I know it sounds very corny when people say, oh, representation matters. But for me, it did. And, and the White Tiger was probably the first time I saw a Latino character in comics. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge thing for me. And I was a big, big White Tiger fan. And so when, if, if, I, if I can ask, when did you yeah. find out about the character? Like the first time? I want to say... I must have been maybe 10 or 11. Okay. So it was after, so you missed the human fly and you saw him somewhere else probably and found out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I actually knew about the white tiger before I knew about the human fly. And you know, okay. this, is, this is a story I've told before, but you know, my aunt owned a bookstore. Right. Uh, and she had uh, a lot of back issues from the bronze age and from, you know, the silver age and, and that sort of thing a lot of Marvel comics. And that's how I read a lot about these characters. Uh, even after, years after they had been these issues had passed and i was basically reading back issues and drinking kool-aid at my, at my aunt's <laughs> bookstore sure sure which is, which is how i found out all about a lot about these comics so yeah but after that you know i i sought it out where i could and i love that i don't i'm not quite sure what miss mercado is wearing that doesn't look puerto rican to me <laughs> it looks more like a flamenco outfit but that's pretty, 
it's pretty sexy though. I'll give you I'll give her that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, that's that takes nothing away from, from uh, Margarita <laughs> here. But the um I like that in one panel there's a kid wearing a t-shirt that says PR power. Mm-hmm. Uh Hector Ayala wears a t-shirt that says Libertad para Puerto Rico, which means liberty for for Puerto Rico. And, I was gonna ask, you know, like he says a, a, a lot of um Spanish words in this. How do they translate okay? Or do like do they drop the ball here in some places? No, they do. They do. I you know, for the most part, yeah. I I mean I didn't nothing jumped out at me in being like uh very strange or anything like that. Okay. And and his attitude to me, it does it does really reflect what was going on in the in the Latino community at the time. Mm-hmm. I can't really speak to the Puerto Rican experience in New York because uh, I'm not Puerto Rican and I'm not from New York. <laughs> but <laughs> my dad in particular was part of, uh, he was moderately involved in the, uh, in the Chicano movement of the, of the late sixties and early seventies. Mm. And so I was kind of steeped in a lot of this as a kid. And this sounds a lot like what I would have heard in my community. Okay. So yeah, no, no, I, I, I think someone, Either someone on staff or Bill Mantlo himself actually went to the trouble to kind of accurately, as much as they could, reflect what a person from that community would think about certain situations. Well, check out this pedigree. Uh, I just looked it up. The White Tiger was created by Bill Mantlo and mm-hmm. George Perez. Ah, let's see. So yeah, that might have been that might have been the the key there. Could have been, could have been. And I, I genuinely feel bad for Hector because like Hector is really down on himself because he's he seeing the human fly being a hero to these, you know, the Latin kids and our Latino kids. I'm sorry. And he feels like he's not good enough. I mean, he actually has a, a genuine self image problem here. Mm-hmm. He feels like he's not good enough as the white tiger to be a hero for them. And that's, I mean, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, and I have to tell you that is, it's not something that is necessarily extremely common. Mm-hmm. But that is something that you will find in the Hispanic or the Latino community, uh, especially in those days. And especially if you are first or second generation uh, American, if you're if you're closer to uh, to the immigration experience, the mm-hmm. immigrant experience uh, with Mexican-Americans, which is what I am. There is something where they would <laughs> basically like uh, what the father says in the movie Selena. When he, when he says that you're not Mexican enough for the Mexicans and you're not American enough for the Americans. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and oh, it's exhausting. It, that is absolutely true. <laughs> and so it, it is very easy to have this kind of uh, sense of never being good enough. Sort of and, a no man's land in the middle. Yeah, exactly. And I think especially this character for, for Hector, Hector is also very like lower working class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he struggles. He struggles to make money. You know, there, he even makes reference, I think, in issue nine. Uh, he makes a joke about being unemployed. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, this is uh, very much reflective of the experience, I think, for a lot of people in that time in that community. Well, he talks about also um, he doesn't feel like he's very good in school and he's struggling and he may not go mm-hmm. back to school, too. Yeah, he talks about that. Yeah, yeah. So I got. I, I got to say though, for the white tiger, he never gives up in this comic book. I mean, he gets shot, he is mm-hmm. poisoned, he gets knocked around. He never stops going after Copperhead, and that's awesome. Yeah, and he does it just because it's the right thing. You exactly. Know? Yeah, and it's it is uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, and I I just love. It. I will 
make one uh, distinction, though. He may have been, and I think he is, the first Latino character uh, superhero mm-hmm. in, in the Marvel Universe. He is not the first Latino superhero. <laughs> well, the way, the way it's he phrased. He the first one in American publishing, but not in you know Mexico or anywhere else. They were, like that. they were very careful to call him first Latin American main character. Mm-hmm. So I guess that means, but he didn't leave his own book though. So I don't know what they mean by main character. Like, I guess they mean, cause he was like, you know, Marvel team up would be, you know, Spider-Man and him mm-hmm. rather than, you know, like a whole team of people. I'm not sure what that meant by that. Cause that's, I was just going by Wikipedia. So, I mean, it is what it yeah, is. I'm not sure I, either. He, I mean, he did have his own features in uh deadly hands of Kung Fu. Oh, okay. All right. There uh, we go then. But it, I don't, but as far as I know, white tiger never carried a book by himself. I, so I got two criticisms of his costume mm-hmm. um one is and maybe it maybe there's a cultural aspect here i'm not aware of but the all-white costume right you're you're representing a person of color and you put them in an all-white costume <laughs> and yeah. man that cowl if you put a little point on it mm-hmm. it looks like the kkk <laughs> so like that i was like a little like hmm you know right. okay um and the other is you know all his power comes from his necklace mm-hmm. and, and maybe this is just frank robbins but like every time the white tiger's on the screen that necklace is flapping around everywhere. Yeah. It is not close to his body at all. And let me tell you, all it takes is a bad guy, just like snatch it. Cause it is, it is literally flapping sometimes like two or three feet away from him, depending right. on the panel. Uh, so it's like, okay, we get it. That's where your power is coming from. That's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> yeah. You know what? But it is represented that way everywhere. Yeah. And these, I don't know if you, if you know, but these, this amulet is actually three pieces and they used to belong to the sons of the tiger. Ah, okay. And, Hector gets a hold of him and he becomes this one person, this one character, the, the white tiger. And so I don't think the white, the costume is necessarily supposed to reflect his culture. I think it's, it's supposed to reflect the source of this power, kind of, <laughs> kind of like Moon Knight, you know, how, okay. how, you know, it's a, it's an office of, it's a uniform of the office. Gotcha. Okay. But yeah, it, it is very, uh, it's very white. <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that is true. That is true. Oh, but just just to finish my thought, yeah, you know, there is a character named uh, Caliman who came out in the in the '60s in Mexico and things like that. So I think this is a very American point of view, but sure. that does not take away from from Hector being an important part of comics history. I I think, yeah. So I'm, I I appreciate uh, seeing him here. Another thing, I love I love seeing Harmony. I, I'm, I have to say, I'm Team <laughs> Harmony now. I love you know she's she's struggling she's she wants to be a good person. Well, you like harmony, but I, I I'm a lot more interested in the curator, uh, oh, yeah. you know, Margarita, in uh, the little bit of romance going on here. Is this is this the first time that we've seen, uh, other than sort of like the will they won't they with harmony, I suppose? But like, is the first time we've seen fly uh, with a romantic connection? I don't know. Maybe I've forgotten one something. No, it is. It is. Okay. Usually he doesn't. Uh, you know, fly is all business. <laughs> but you know I, I you know when you're de- dealing with uh margarita Mercado, all bets are off right i mean you know woof. there's a lot of heat coming there i'm just saying oh yeah no no and she she is you know she is not uh she's, she's not dancing around the, the the issue i didn't mean to pull us away from harmony because i do have stuff i want to say about harmony like if yeah, no, you look at, at page eight i'm sorry uh, issue eight right mm-hmm. if you look on uh page 11 there is uh that's that's where harmony kind of like totally jacks all over human fly being a jerk right she's being mm-hmm. a jerk asking him questions so look at that fourth panel and the way they did the the mask of the human fly with his uh it's it's, it's you know it's a red mask and a cowl and it's got these white little 
fake eyebrows or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, those eyebrows look pissed. Uh, uh, now, <laughs> yeah. it, it, I don't know if it's that way every issue, but man, he, I mean, they really did the whole Spider-Man mask where like the eyes change shape sort of thing. The, his mask is like emoting how pissed off he is right now. <laughs> I right. really like that. It's very es- expressive. Yeah. You know, and what I like too is that he's not, he's, he's obviously, because fr- in the past he has been frustrated with Harmony and, you know, just he doesn't understand why she's coming at him this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also kind of mad at his crew because they're, they are uh, perpetuating the argument. You know, they're, mm. they're fighting with harmony. Mm-hmm. And he even says, Arnie blaze. That's enough. We know what we stand for. We don't have to prove ourselves. You know, Good so, point. yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because it, that is again, the human flies principles at, at play. Yeah. But yeah, that I've come out before as a fan of this costume. I love this costume. and yeah i mean sometimes frank robbins especially is very good at this for being a mask that covers everything but his eyes it is very expressive yeah you know what he's thinking that's for sure yeah i mean and that's a that's a neat trick yeah you know i love hector's transformation into uh into the white tiger and i like that the um in it's a classic comic book scenario where the guards, the cops and the, the museum guards think that the good guy is the bad guy. Right. And I can kind of understand because after the transformation, the white tiger looks frightening. <laughs> and he's leaping right at the cop. Now they've been shooting at him, but he's they're leaping, right. he's leaping right at the cop saying, you know, enough of this. But he's leaping past them. It just looks like he's coming right at them. Right. Right. But you know that he he just he looks fierce. Yes, he does. Yeah. I assume you're looking at page 16 because that's what I'm looking at where he's yeah. yelling, the white tiger! Right. He's leaping right at him. It's very Kirby fingers out in front kind of thing going yeah. on. It looks great. Yeah, it really does. Again, you know, he Robbins is just so good at athleticism. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can see what the fly is. You can see the strain. You know, nothing looks like they're, oh, I'm no, no, no bagging on Superman, but you know, I'm, I'm Superman <laughs> lifting an elephant, you know, the, everything, everything looks like it's an effort. Yeah. You know, from the tiger to the fly to the, you know, everyone it's, I, I really, uh, always appreciate that. Well, it's a very physical issue too. Like Copperhead is meant to be entirely made of metal and they talk about a lot. Every time he hits, it feels like they're getting hit by like a jackhammer right. or something or our solid metal. And it just, I, I can feel it. Cause you know, it's, now, White Tiger's got powers, but, you know, Human Flash, just a regular guy. And I know how much it hurts to hit, you know, bump up against a thing of metal. So mm-hmm. I can really feel it. And I think it uh, really, really resonates. And I just noticed that the fly and or human fly, forgive me, uh, the human fly and White Tiger, they actually only meet once or twice in the issue. And it's only for like a second or two. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like they meet. They just both show up to kick uh, Copperhead's <laughs> butt at the same time. Like in issue eight, they do that. Like one scene where they're coming at him and then they get separated. And then issue nine, again, you know, at the very end, they both kind of attack Copperhead at the same time. But they, there's no like formal superhero fight and team up kind of thing here at all. No, no. So they just happen to be and Daredevil too. I mean, they all just kind of happen to be in the same comic book doing yeah. the same stuff, but they're not really teaming up, interestingly enough. Yeah, I think he actually spends less time with Daredevil than he does <laughs> the White Tiger. Yeah. Because Daredevil kind of just comes up and comes in at the end and, and beats up the smugglers, but that's in a whole different area. I, w- I wonder what drove them to include Daredevil, other than it's great and it's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe because Copperhead was his villain or something, but like I don't know that he was... I enjoyed it. I, I will always take a Daredevil appearance, but I, it almost feels like it, they didn't necessarily need it. Maybe, maybe this, maybe just what it boiled down to. Maybe you know, Manlo just wanted to put Daredevil in the story because it was in New York. Maybe that's what it was. 
this is about halfway through the run. Mm-hmm. I think they probably at this point were looking at numbers that were maybe good, maybe not as good as they were hoping to see. You know, that's what you do. You start throwing in guest stars and you throw in the people who you think will attract someone just seeing them on the uh, on the cover. Yeah. You know, and I love the White Tiger, but I'm not saying that he, I wouldn't say that he was necessarily that big a draw. I think, you know, Daredevil is what's going to get people to pick this up if they haven't been picking it up already. But they didn't put him on the cover. They just mentioned him like they, they oh, say his name true. at the bottom, which is crazy. I mean, yeah. And I would have killed to see John Byrne draw Daredevil on the cover. That would have been amazing, right? That is true. So that I got to talk true. about I got to talk about Daredevil for a second. So there, yeah. there's an interesting retcon in here where he says he was actually at the skateboard stunt, right? right. Which is kind of cool. Uh, and he says, this is crazy. My super senses picked out a dozen of New York's hottest art smugglers. Yeah. What? I mean, I know he's got <laughs> radar sense. I didn't know he had hottest art smuggler sense as well. Is, um, that, is that like a shag sense? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. Um, what else? Uh, so Daredevil also, he's the one who, uh, who, who brought our favorite bear as the guest star of this issue mm-hmm. where he throws the, uh, the punk into the bear cage, which was absolutely awesome. Love right. that. Right. I, mean, I mean, Daredevil kind of killed the guy. I mean, basically he throws him in a freaking bear cage and mm-hmm. he's like, Oh, he got fed a while ago. You're probably fine, but you may want to start climbing. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's pretty much like, uh, you know, you got a 50, 50 chance of living. I'm okay with that. <laughs> wow. Wow. Daredevil's gone pretty hardcore. All right. Well, you know, he didn't, he doesn't, he come from hell's kitchen for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a rough place. That's true. That's, that is true. So I, I also, what's sort of interesting is Daredevil getting in this issue in this month. So I, I took the time to look up where Daredevil was in his own book at this point. Mm-hmm. So he's on issue 152, the same month that number nine's on the shelf, right? So the same month Daredevil is in here. It's, he's on 152, which is, uh, this is like a long time after Matt and Karen Page have broken up. You know, she's out in Hollywood. You know, this is after Matt and Black Widow's romance is over. He's no longer living in San Francisco. He's just back in New York. It's kind of standard fare Daredevil era. Mm. Except the interesting thing is, issue 152, again, same same month as this issue, uh, is literally the first issue written by Roger McKenzie. Now, if you fast forward one year from now, Roger McKenzie is still the writer when this new artist comes on board named Frank Miller. Hmm. And Frank Miller will eventually take over the book from Roger McKenzie, and Daredevil will never be the same. Uh, So it's sort of interesting that uh, this is the sort of last gasp of traditional daredevil i guess you could say before he became what everyone knows the last daredevil of this era yeah exactly he at this point he's just kind of a standard fair superhero and you know everything's going to change in just a year from now yeah i don't think the frank miller daredevil would have (laughs) involved himself in this story (laughs) he said it was a slow night you know (laughs) that's true that's true hanging out at the central park zoo why not yeah sure yeah, you know, we're, we're into issue nine now. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. I am jumping all over the place. Aren't no, I? no, 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 no. That's good. That's good. Yeah, the only thing I wanted to point out in issue eight after that was on uh, page 30. Mm-hmm. I love the lighting that Robbins is using because they're in the tunnel and the human fly is using his uh, the light that is in his baton. Yeah. And uh, you know, I love the baton. <laughs> I it's love a- to see him use it. As your past guest pointed out, it is, in fact, an omni-gadget from DC uh, role-playing game. Absolutely it, is. It absolutely is. But I love the way the shadowing is done. Mm-hmm. It's it's really uh, nicely. There is there is a particular panel where it's just the fly holding a, a, a hand up to his ear. 
saying, let me listen. But you can see that light just mm-hmm. shadowing his face in a really, really nice way. They weren't just calling, they weren't just phoning this issue in. You're absolutely right. If you were to just look at this panel in and of itself, and just to look at the, at the fly's face, you mm-hmm. would know he is being lit by a flashlight. I mean, yeah. There's absolutely no doubt that, that the shadows show that he's being lit by a flashlight. And that is really cool. Yeah. So in issue nine, and I, you know what, I forgot oh, to mention. Wait, hold on. Before yeah. you leave, I got to mention on that same page um, is, maybe it's not, the, yeah, it's the same page. One of my favorite bits in the whole issue is he calls out the trap, the trap where the uh, the copperhead is set up, where it lowers the urn down mm-hmm. to the subway. He points out, he talks about how uh, how rich and expensive this trap would be. The high hydraulic platform <laughs> built to lower the urn must have cost a fortune. Yeah. And it's 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 just half a step, and I think Mantlo's having fun with it. He's just half a step from that old adage where you say, "Okay, how at what point does the supervillain spend a million dollars to steal a hundred thousand dollars?" Right? <laughs> I mean, that's what this feels like. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, and not only that, but for no one at the museum to notice. Right. You know, this is a lot of heavy digging. <laughs> he must have had contractors in there at night. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Where do you get your money, Copperhead? And that, those last two panels, too. Again, before we leave issue eight, where Copperhead's laughing over what we think is now the dead white tiger, and mm-hmm. and there's all this just you know lovely prose about how the how human fly is just a regular guy. How's he going to stop a flood? How's he going to save these kids? It just adds, I mean that is a hell of a cliffhanger, and it just those last two panels really sell it, and I just adore it. Those last two panels are kind of bridged by Copperhead laughing. His mm-hmm. his ha has are on both sides of the panels. Yeah, uh, it's just really thoughtful again they were they were putting thought into how this was this comic was being produced and it shows agreed agreed these are professionals who cared about what they were doing they weren't just churning it out you know this wasn't kids fluff this is something Mm -hmm. they were trying to tell a good story not realizing that you know 40 years later a couple of guys are still gonna be talking about it (laughs) but something that you know would get the kid who definitely get their who definitely want to spend their 35 cents the next month Mm -hmm. if this had come across my local 7-eleven which was where i got my comics at the time I definitely would have been picking this up. Mm-hmm. So uh, I failed to mention in uh, in my summary the creative team for issue number nine. So let me just say that the, Bill Mantlo was the writer. Frank mm-hmm. Robbins is, is our artist again. Uh, Mike Esposito is our inker. Letters are by John Costanza. Colors are by, by Mary Titus. And Archie Goodwin is our editor. We pick up right where we left off and with this splash page of the fly and uh, Margarita and Arnie and the kids looking at these floodwaters rising while Copperhead is laughing over the prone body of White Tiger. And things look pretty dire. And that's a great way to open a comic. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't know any better, though, you would think both these are taking place in the same place, the way it's drawn. Mm -hmm. Because there's a diagonal you know, line, but the floodwaters are crossing over it at the bottom. So that's true. If I didn't know what was happening, I might be a little confused, but that's just a tiny little, again, that's what happens when you do podcast. You you spend too much time (laughs) focusing on stuff like this. (laughs) I knew that that is a good observation though, because yeah, that, that I could see where that would be confusing. Right. Uh, One thing I I liked about the dialogue that uh, Mantlo was doing here was having the, the adults do what adults do when kids are around, which is whisper to each other. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, to keep the kids from panicking, even though they're going, this looks pretty bad, <laughs> Yeah, but they're, but they are, uh, uh, again, as I said, they're, you know, they're, they're keeping it from the kids for the kids own well-being, but they're just kind of whispering to each other. And I thought that was a really nice touch because you don't see a lot of whispering in, in, uh, in these kinds of comics. 
I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that is very much a parental or chaperone type of thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Let's not worry the kids, but mm-hmm. let's be honest, we're, we're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like I said, it just, it just goes on. I, I really enjoy seeing uh, Hector as himself finding mm-hmm. Copperhead, which is not something I was expecting when I first read this comic. And yeah, and, <laughs> and then, you know, just this floating around in a giant urn is fantastic. It's and, a, it's a great action movie idea. You know, I mean, the whole idea of floating the super heavy urn thing, like, wow, that's actually, I mean, it's a little excessive though, but, but the idea of how to transport <laughs> this really heavy urn by floating it, that's a great idea. It really is. Right. You know, that could be the tagline for, for, uh, human flag comics. It's a little excessive, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but fun. <laughs> you know, I, I also like how, uh, chatty the kids are. You know, mm-hmm. these are city kids. And not only that, they're, they're city kids from a neighborhood where you have to be a little tough. Yeah. And a- so, you know. Apparently, IS-44. Yeah, IS-44. And so they are, um, they know they're, they're in a dangerous situation, but none of them are panicking. And none of them are trying to save themselves at the cost of anyone else. They are there as a group. Hmm. And, uh, and I really like that. And I, I like that the implication is that the fly is kind of helping to inspire that as well, because on page seven, the fly actually asks one of the kids, are you scared Katie? And she says, not with you here, Mr. Fly. Oh, and then they, the other kids are start kind of almost like pre bragging saying, Oh, wait until my little sister hears about this. (laughs) Right. They're they're, (laughs) they're already thinking we're going to get out of this. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and the human fly inspiring them too. that living ladder thing that they're doing where he's hanging over the edge upside down by his legs mm-hmm. so that he can hand the kids up. It's just awesome. I love yeah. the idea of it. I love the execution of it. I love the desperation. I mean, this feels a little bit like Poseidon Adventure kind of, you know, it's yeah. 1970s disaster movie. Like we have to do everything in our power to survive the next you know 30 minutes. And mm-hmm. I don't care what it takes. And that is a good point. Mantlo never loses he never skips an opportunity to show the flies uh athleticism and his background mm-hmm. you know he's always doing in a way he's always doing a stunt not necessarily being super heroic or anything he's he's these are things he would normally do on a high wire or you know some other kind of stunt and he's just using the skills that he has he has trained himself as a stuntman not as a superhero and let's face it if Mantlo could have made this earn rocket powered he would have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he thought about it. I 450 BC. Maybe I can't pull that one off. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, on page 10, we get a good look at, uh, at Margarita's uh, outfit, which would make Prince green with envy. Yes. You or know, purple with envy. Yeah. You know, and then we get Daredevil on the scene and Daredevil looks great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Robbins does a, a, a very nice looking Daredevil, especially there's a, a panel there at the end where he's, I guess it's getting dark, which I guess is the dawn at doomsday, which doesn't make sense to me, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, what, what is it dark at? Oh, what is, what is that? By the cover copy? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember. That is doomsday dawns at night, which. <laughs> doomsday dawns at What? What? Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> You know, every now and then, I think Mantle's just trying to see what he can get past the readers. Well, sometimes cover copy is written by the editor, so oh, it could we'll be that it. could be that in the case. Yeah, in that case, we have to we have to point a finger at Archie Goodwin. Yeah, you know, Daredevil looks great, 
And well, the way they did the blacks and to highlight the, and to make mm-hmm. the red stand out, you know, the he's all black, but you kind of see the red eyes, you see the red DD, you can kind of see the outline of the horns. I like how one of the bad guys later says, Bring me his horns about Daredevil, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, again, I just, I, the fight scene between uh, Hector and Copperhead is, is great, it's very physical. Mm-hmm. White Tiger is doing his best to to put uh, Copperhead down, and Copperhead just won't shut up. <laughs> right, <laughs> he, just, he just keeps talking and talking and talking about how, you know, oh, how dare you? And you, I'll have my revenge, and you know, your reward for my salvation will be death, scum of the streets, and you know, right. just all these things. And it's like, oh my God, Copperhead, just be quiet. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's some irony too, is that as they're as they're floating through the sewer, not sewers, but the the subway tunnel, you know, the only thing that's keeping Copperhead alive is the fact that White Tiger is staying above the water. So like right. Copperhead's dragging himself up by hanging onto White Tiger. So White Tiger's actually unintentionally saving Copperhead, which is kind of interesting, yeah. which then of course <laughs> the reverse happens at the end where Copperhead's not there. I'm sorry, where White Tiger's not there and Copperhead drowns. Uh, right. Well, supposedly. supposedly. But yeah. You know, and then on page 16, that's the scene that we're talking about where the, um, the, the, are they gangsters? I guess. I don't know. Smugglers. They're gunsels. They're gunsels. Yeah. Well, they're, 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 they're hot art smugglers is technically what they are. They, are they get hot. called gunsel again. Like Ange mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. you know, his favorite descriptor for uh, bad guys. Yeah. Well remembered. Yeah. They, these are more gunsels and, uh, they just start shooting at the, you know, the fly and at the kids and everybody right. else who's in there. And the fly says, kids, crew, everybody stay down. And that's when the kid tells him, ain't you going to help Daredevil, Mr. Ain't you going to help Daredevil, Mr. Fly? And he says, no, (laughs) you know, I already told you back in the museum, Stanley, that I'm not a crime fighter. Besides Daredevil looks like he's doing just fine all by himself. That could be a line where you kind of go like, oh man, what's the deal with this human fly? He doesn't even want to help out or, you know, but from the perspective we see into, we're looking down into the urn at them. And we can see the faces of everybody there kind of looking up. They're kind of scared. There's a bullet ricocheting off the, the edge of the urn. And the fly looks determined. You know, he doesn't look afraid. He doesn't look like he is necessarily hiding. And again, this emphasizes the idea that what the fly is concerned about is protecting these people. Yep. Especially the kids. That is a lot to kind of cram into a few lines of dialogue and the art. Got to imagine it also resonated with kids as the readers because mm-hmm. you, here's the guy who's, you know, now they, as a kid, you probably want him to go out there and, and punch some bad guys. But the reality is he's taking the time to protect the kids. And that had to resonate with, with the kids at some level to feel safe with them. Uh, and I, I just want to clarify one quick thing too. Even though there's bullets flying into the urn where they are, the bad guys weren't shooting at the kids at this point. And there's a reason for that. The bad guys are shooting at daredevil and the right. bullets are ricocheting into the urn. And the reason why that's important because mm-hmm. later on, Copperhead is ready to kill the kids. And, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but all the goons say, no, we're not okay with killing kids. You know, we draw the line. We might be art thieves, but we draw the line at killing right. kids. And they actually turn on Copperhead and Real help point. take him down. Yeah. And uh, it reminds me a little bit of that scene in Rocketeer when uh, the cops, like the FBI or cops or whatever in the mob are all there together, but they start working together to fight the Nazis. Cause it's like, you know, Hey, we don't have to get along, but even that's a worse problem right there. And that's what happens here is the mobsters are like, well, you know, uh, we don't we don't want to do the right thing necessarily, but we're not going to let you kill kids. So we're going to stop you and we're going to help the hero stop you. Right. Yeah. No, that that is an excellent point. Yeah. That because, yeah, there, you know, there's, you know, I'm not going to make excuses for criminals, but there are different levels of 
<laughs> of criminality. And it's one thing to smuggle art. It's another thing to shoot helpless kids in, in a hole. Well, the hottest art smugglers apparently uh, have a heart of gold. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get what? We get a couple of fight scenes going on at the same time, and they're both great. Well, uh, White Tiger fighting Copperhead and Daredevil fighting the goons. Yeah. yeah. White Tiger yeah. just doesn't give up, man. No. Wow. That no. guy's tough. Yeah. And he, I think he even says something like that. Like, I'm not so easy to kill, senor. You know, some, mm-hmm. every time you hit him, he gets back up. That's one of the reasons I like, I like the White Tiger as a hero. You know, and, then, and maybe, maybe it's this thing I have for, you know, these street level, these street level heroes, you know, that are, are vulnerable. You know, and all of these characters actually are street level heroes dealing with people with guns. And even Copperhead is just as he's a guy with a gun. I think that's what really resonates about uh, about these stories. Yeah, I've always liked stories where I mean, as much as I am a fan of Firestorm, who's like a, you know, kind of a world shaker. I really I'm a I'm been a a massive fan of Daredevil since, oh, my gosh, like 1989 or something like that. Mm -hmm. I've been reading a pretty uh, pretty fairly consistently since then. I love the, as you said, the more grounded characters. I love the guys who are going out there and risking their neck for, for smaller scale too. You know, like it, regardless of the cover copy on this issue, the city's not in danger. It's just a heist. And, but it still makes for a great story. You know, the, the world doesn't have to be in danger every single time. And the, the good guy doesn't have to be able to juggle planets to still be a hero. Yeah, precisely. Especially once, I mean, we get the, <laughs> we get this, kind of weird reveal of who this copperhead is (laughs) yeah and you and you realize you know he is not he is not going to be dominating the world anytime soon margarita recognizes who he is and it turns out that he is just another another museum curator that banality fits so well because it's like okay you know it's just some jerk with a gun who, who stole someone else's costume in order to do something like steal and earn Mm-hmm. You know, and to go back to what they were saying before, too, where does a museum curator get the money to build a hydraulic lift under the museum? <laughs> uh, maybe the first copy had, copperhead had a bunch of money stashed. I don't really know. <laughs> there is a line here I don't get where he, he says the first copperhead was, and this, this is his words, the mad antithesis of crime. Maybe that was revealed in Daredevil issue. Maybe that was his tagline. I don't know. The mad antithesis of crime. I don't know. But he yeah. says he's going to be crime incarnate instead, uh, which is, I, again, it's like, I guess if I was super invested in Copperhead <laughs> as a bad guy for Daredevil, this would all mean something and I'd care. But I like Daredevil. I don't remember Copperhead and I don't no. care. Yeah. No, I mean, this just kind of sounds like a museum creator kind of trying to pump himself up, I guess. <laughs> it's, know, I again, the fact that they had to delve into why there's a new Copperhead, I think was a mistake to go down that road. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think, again, it must've come from like, I don't know, the daredevil editor or something was like, excuse me, you can't use that character. Uh, we killed him in issue 155. <laughs> so I'm sorry, you can't use that. You know, whatever you issue it was. But you know what I do like? I do like that. It gave us, <laughs> it's uh, that it gave us antithesis. antithesis. <laughs> right. With the cat or with the snake sex. Antithesis. <laughs> again, that is snake a noises. lot of S's. Yeah. And then we get a final bit of heroics from, from the human fly yep who is off balance from you know copperhead's kind of off balance from getting shot at and the human fly throws that baton bonks him on the head with it hard enough to knock him over and into the water well he he doesn't knock him over and then the white tiger trips him yeah and then he goes into the water and we do not see him come back up 
you know, it's a great bit of teamwork and it's nice to see a little bit of action from the human fly. Right. He did play a role in helping take down the bad guy. Absolutely. Yeah. And then in the last panel where the human fly sees a whole lot of action. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's where he gets that kiss from, from, uh, from uh, Miss Mercado. And uh, I just love the look on his face. (laughs) His eyes are just like rolling back in his head. (laughs) (laughs) And, and uh, Daredevil's trying to say something about, you know, we're going to look for, we'll begin the search for Copperhead as soon as, and White Tiger interrupts him and says, I don't think, I don't think La Senorita is listening, amigo. Because, you know, she, <laughs> she's busy planting one on the human fly. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to guess that she doesn't come back, sadly. Unfortunately not. There are ah. not a lot of recur outside of the, of the fly's crew and Harmony. There are, I don't think there are any real recurring characters. I like to think that she remains, unless there's something to contradict this. I like to think that she remains his like long distance girlfriend. And, you know, while he's off fighting, I don't know, whatever he fights next, a pterodactyl or something, uh, you know, <laughs> he's, he's like heart, you know, hearkening for his vacation where he's going to fly back to New York and spend a little time with his lady Margarita. Hey, so, why not? Mm-hmm. You know, if he's, if he uh, finds himself in New York, the museum's right there. Exactly. You She's know? got some vacation time coming up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why not? That's now human flycast canon. There it is. Love it. (laughs) So that's the two segments of this story. That's the both parts of this two parter. So read. I mean, I know you had read uh, eight already. You hadn't. You hadn't read nine. No, I had not. So taking these two issues together, would this would, would this inspire you to read more human fly comics? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think this was super fun and because you, you know that next time it's going to be a different adventure and a whole different cast other than, again, other than supporting team members, like, you know, he travels, it goes place to place, right? And that's the thing back then, especially where the heroes would be traveling and going, you know, especially like TV shows and stuff like that of the era where you get your hero traveling from place to place. Mm-hmm. So you get a whole new setup every month. And I think that would interest me. I'd be like, oh, what, you know, here's the, the character, but a lot of it's the story happening around him. It's not just his story. It's what's happening around him, too. I, I know that this is a very particular flavor of comic. <laughs> would you would you recommend this to other people, to other comic so. fans? I think so. I, I think you have to have a taste for Bronze Age Marvel. Um, if, if you've got it's some even even just a tiny bit in you uh, of it, and I would extend that to say, let's say if you're a fan of the early Firestorm, because that was essentially a Bronze Age Marvel comic published by mm. DC. Uh, if you've if you've got a flavor for any Bronze Age Marvel at all, this will be right up your alley. It absolutely will. I mean, heck, it's got Daredevil and White Tiger in it, so it's got superheroes, you know? <laughs> so I absolutely would recommend this to anybody that has any interest in in that era, because whereas Bronze Age DC is a struggle for me, Bronze Age Marvel is like pure joy for me. You know, again, this, this is a very uh, specific kind of comic I, from a very specific kind of era. Do you think there is room for the human fly in the current day marvel comics and what do you think that would look like that's a great question and you and i know you've asked each one of your guests and i've listened to every one of the guests answers and this is a tough one to answer so i would say as he exists here in this book and i'll say Mm -hmm. no i don't think there's room for an evil knievel or a super dave osborne or fonzie jumping sharks or you know or even the fall guy (laughs) or any of that right right because i think what's happened is these kinds of stunts have become the purview of things like Jackass, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all Johnny Knoxville and it's all jaded. 
and it's mm. all to victimize somebody. That's what's funny is not not ama- not the amazing stunt that you do, but that you're victimizing someone else in a funny way, right. uh, which which makes me sad. Uh, I've tried to enjoy Jackass. It's not for me. And that, you know, for people that like it, you know, good for you. Uh, it's just not my thing. But I did. I sat and thought for a long time, how do you make this work as a story? And I've, I've got a pitch, if you will. Okay. Yeah. So you do, you do a, a comic about a jackass type Johnny Knoxville guy, right? Who does these practical jokes, stunts that are funny and someone's always the victim and he's, and he's a jerk, right? He, he doesn't want to be a hero or anything like that. He's going out to have fun. He wants to make a buck. So let's say he's traveling around doing a show from town to town. You know, maybe he's not as famous as Johnny Knoxville. And this is how he makes his money. He goes to carnivals, whatever. I don't know, whatever you want to say. But you do it kind of like a, like a Ted Lasso kind of show. And I don't mm-hmm. mean Ted himself, but if you ever watch Ted Lasso, what happens in that show is everyone else in that show becomes better people. Mm. and Or The Good Place was sort of the same thing, too, where the main character there, uh, she starts off as a horrible person, and by the end, she's a better person. So it's the story of this Johnny Knoxville guy becoming a better person, right? What's happening is he's yeah. going town to town to town. And, you know, in, in sort of a Jimmy Stewart sort of way, these crazy circumstances happen and he's stuck in the middle of it. That's how I always think of Jimmy Stewart is, you know, he's the regular man and, uh, with, with crazy circumstance around him. So this John Nashville guy, the crazy circumstances around him. And along the way, he ends up helping people, not because he wants to, but maybe there's a reluctant reason. Maybe he's helping some kid, uh, you know, uh, from a Ferris wheel that's going to fall, not because he wanted to help the kid, but because, I don't know, maybe the kid's sitting on his wall. You know, Johnny left his wallet on the Ferris wheel, and he's just trying to get his wallet and help <laughs> the kid down. You know, something ridiculous. You know, some selfish reason he's helping people at first. Right. And then as you go along, he becomes a better person. Now, it, that'd be a slow burn. Unfortunately, it would take you 12 issues and not modern day issues, but like real issues to make that believable, mm-hmm. um, to see that transformation from being a selfish jerk to being somebody you, you want to root for. But that, that's the only way I could see it happening nowadays because you could still have amazing stunts, but have them be from that perspective of this selfish person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me, your description reminds me a little bit of, uh, of Booster Gold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the wrong time yeah. to take a sip of water. Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, the Booster Gold's a great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good thinking. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. I could. I could totally see that. And and I understand what you mean. It, it's this character is almost too good to be true. Yeah, as, as a person, it, to the point that it, <laughs> well, it's only he, he he may have actually been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. And you know, yeah, talking about the real, <laughs> the real human fly. Yeah, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think this was the, this was the standard he necessarily held himself to. But right. anyway, you could get away with it in 1978 Marvel comics. I don't think you could necessarily get away with it uh, in today's comics, just because the readership has changed so much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can, I can see going at it at that angle, and in a way, being um, a redemption story. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned something because uh, I, I don't know if you read the letters pages, but I found them very interesting. And the whole idea of who the human fly really was versus who the human fly is in the comic. Mm-hmm. They actually address this in here. In here. They, say, they say that um, what they're striving for in the comic are the concepts that embody the human fly, right. not necessarily who he really is. Um, it's, it, it's all about the conceptualization of and how to make it work in a comic So they fully acknowledge that this is not necessarily a representation of the real guy, but of the concepts that he's trying to put forward. So I think that's, that's important to know. Cause yeah, I mean, he's just out there trying to get famous. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. I don't think he's helping kids, you know, on a whitewater raft in a subway. Um, right. Yeah. No, he's, he's, uh, 
he he's mostly holding a, a grudge against Evil Knievel and <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So also in this letters page, I got to mention too. They actually mention in the letters page for issue eight. They talk about the the bus jump and how he failed, and they talk about how he got hurt, and uh, it's it's all in here. They, but it's interesting. It's they're putting the positive spin on the accident. You, you know, they're they're talking about how a lot of the newspapers were called it a fitting end and were mean to him at this point mm-hmm. but here in the letters page they're trying to say no you know it's all about he had to try you know nothing venture nothing gained doesn't matter that he failed to set the world record what matters is that he tried right and that's, yeah. and that's what they're trying to point out uh, that but it's also revealing for us as a historical segment knowing okay so issue eight is about the time where that horrible bus crash happened interesting yeah, well, actually, yeah, I was uh, I was looking at that. And actually, the uh, I had my timing wrong. This was actually uh, let's see, this was probably a few months after the because he did the jump in October 1977, and this was this October se- October seventh. Yeah, keep in mind the publishing uh, delay though. Mm-hmm, right, exactly. So this this there was probably some overlap, and yeah, I mean, Marvel was was probably trying to get ahead of this. Uh, and trying to say, you know, because after the crash, uh, Rick Rojat, who's, uh, mo- who is the most likely person to have been the human fly, or at least one of the most, uh, public human fly. That's when he disappeared. Mm-hmm. That's kind of when he, he, uh, fell out of the public eye after that stunt. And so I can see where Marvel would kind of be trying to hedge the, because it's right there on the cover because he's real. And if the person if the real person suddenly is not available anymore, I can certainly see Marvel trying to say, well, this is supposed to be our version of the real human fly, not necessarily the real human fly. Yeah. Well, you know, it's fascinating too. If this is when he starts to come out of public eye and yet we still get another 11 issues Mm -hmm. and, and knowing that this is bi-monthly, this isn't even a monthly magazine. So that means it went for almost another two years, even yeah. after the character was gone. You know, that's that's sort of astonishing that it managed. It's sort of like Mash lasting what uh, you know a lot longer than the actual Korean War. You know, <laughs> right. it, uh, human fly lasts longer, or Micronauts. You know, that went on forever when the toys were done, right? Rom mm-hmm. too. So Manlo has the has a magical way of taking a licensed property and keeping it going longer than the property mm-hmm. actually lasted. Yeah, you know that is that's a good point because yeah, I. Looking at it from that perspective, the comic book human fly outlasted the actual human fly. Mm-hmm. And that's that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is really kind of amazing. It's the Mantlo magic, man. It really is. Is there anything else that you wanted to uh to mention about these two issues or about this story? Well, one more thing. Uh, issue nine's uh letters page talks about a human fly fan club that's coming. Mm, uh, yeah. I, w- I want to know if I can still sign up. <laughs> i think by being on this podcast you are already a member <laughs> I, I i want to say that that is your your automatic admission well this is the 1970s we're celebrating that i need a patch so i can stitch on my denim jacket then <laughs> we all oh, we got to get on that yeah patreon <laughs> patreon let's do it all right well if you don't have anything else uh i'm gonna go ahead and, and wrap this up then Chag, thank you again for for being on the show this is it's always great talking to you especially about fun comics like this you know you always you always say how uh you know we as comic book readers and and us on the network you're always encouraging us to find our joy 
And I have to tell you, that is one big reason I decided to do this particular show. So thank you so much for being on. Oh, dude, this was an absolute blast. I had so much fun prepping for it that the conversation has been everything I hoped it would be. And yeah, it, it is absolutely joyful was, was what these comics is, the, is a great word for it. it. It's fun and it's a hoot. And uh, I couldn't, I, I'm so glad you're doing this show because I, I can't imagine anyone else would come at it from the same angle you are where, I mean, you're celebrating it and you're investigating it and you're trying to, you know, you're talking about DB Cooper for goodness sakes. I mean, you're, you're really <laughs> looking at this from all angles. Whereas I think anyone else other than Ben Avery, I should, I should mm-hmm. put a caveat there uh, would come at it and try and attack it. Cause when I Google articles about human fly comics, people are not complimentary. So yeah. I love that you and uh, are celebrating it and treating the, the material as it should be. And again, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you, Shag. The Death Defying Human Flycast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. If you'd like to subscribe or leave a comment for the Human Flycast, you can do that on our website at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at Human Flycast and on Instagram at FWP underscore Max. Be sure to follow and tag the network with hashtag FWPodcasts. The Death Defined Human Fly list, a playlist including all the music featured in each episode so far, can be found on Spotify, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Shag, before we, uh, before I wrap this up further, why don't you tell the people where they can find you? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you can find me anywhere on the network on a lot of different shows. I, I primarily hang around the, the Justice League International show, the Once Upon a Geek show, uh, Aquaman and Firestorm, Who's Who, Digest Cast, and those. But then I, once in a while, I'll appear just like I am here. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook as Once Upon a Geek Podcast, or you can find me on Twitter as Once Upon a Geek. Awesome. Go find uh, all those links, everybody, because that is uh, everything is worth following. So <laughs> oh, go, go, go find that. <laughs> And we've mentioned Patreon a couple of times here. So if you'd like to support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and why wouldn't you, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts, where you can make a one-time or monthly contribution and unlock various rewards, including getting name-checked on this or any network show of your choice. Support the network, reap the rewards, just like death-defying human flycast supporter Chip Donahue. Thanks, Chip. I, I, think- like to, I like to think that he's got a rocket-powered MP3 player. For when he listens to the show. <laughs> he's, he's listening to this podcast at 80 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, Chip. We appreciate it. And thanks again to you, High Flyers. And remember, the wildest superheroes are real. So check it out. Uh, first got it when he was six, didn't know any tricks. Matter of fact, first time he got on it, he slipped, landed on his hip, and busted his lip. For a week, he had to talk with a list like this. Now we can end the story right here, but Shorty didn't quit, it was something in the air, uh, yeah, he said it was something so appealing, he couldn't fight the feeling, something about it, he knew he couldn't doubt it, couldn't understand it, branded, since the first kick flip, he landed, uh, labeled a misfit, a bandit, cocoon, 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 his neighbors couldn't stand it, so, he was banished to the park, started in the morning, one stopped after dark, yeah, when they said it's getting late in here, so I'm sorry young man, there's no skating here, so we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. And away he rolled, just a rebel to the world with no place to go. And so we kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, kick, push, coast. So come escape with me, just a rebel.